<clears throat> hey, what's going on? I am your girl, Madam Butterfly, and you are back. Actually, we are back, rather, with another episode of Frequency Bay. Um, so, alright, so before we get into it today, I just, there's a couple things that I kind of want to address and I want to say really quick. Uh, and basically, we're just going to hop back into the human use of human beings. And uh, we're going to go over a few articles, and that'll be our episode for today. But I just wanted to say a few things really quick before we got started. And to get straight to it, what I want to speak to is... Um... Oh, one second. All right, folks, <laughs> so um, really simply, uh, basically what I want to say is that there are a lot of talking heads I notice that exist within the spiritual community, the quote-unquote conscious community, and um, in layman's terms, what I, I, I basically want to say and address is that um, and I, I talked a little bit about it yesterday on my Facebook page, but, um, I feel as though that there's a big difference between feeling and then knowing, and we need more people within the conscious, quote-unquote, spiritual community who stand in knowing as opposed to feeling, um, Feeling is great, <laughs> but a lot of times the people who feel in the quote-unquote spiritual and conscious community, what you guys feel is, um, or what people feel and what they speak on um, is just... It could be more uh, developed, I guess I'll put it that way. And I understand that people, there are people in the conscious community, in the spiritual community who are doing really well, doing really great. I understand that, but I personally really wish that people would put more emphasis in deciphering what comes from their ego as opposed to their actual uh, spirit self. Um... So yeah, that's that's pretty much it. I think that the people who are in the spiritual slash conscious community that take the time to um, 
kind of need the knowing within their 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 feeling um have a clearer message than those who don't um and i think that in the same breath what's happening also is very beautiful because there's a lot of information on a lot of different topics that come along that really need to be unpacked in a way that is unpacked in a way where we're giving it the time and the space in which like some of these topics actually deserve um like for instance there was one topic or actually two topics out of the first topic that I, I came across a lady was venting about um her her motherhood and the the the, the not so pretty side of motherhood and uh there was a lot I think that could have been said to, to what she was talking about. And she was pretty much just venting, and I thought it was beautiful. And um, there's also another girl who was uh, speaking on the topic of, you know, having family and friends that don't really understand or respect what it is that you do or take it seriously, which can, you know, bring in its own trauma. Uh, and can you know because there are different levels of trauma there's there's small trauma there's big trauma there's neutral trauma so i think that you know, a lot of people in the quote-unquote terror community they experience a lot of microaggressions and you know micro traumas from people who don't understand or don't want to understand and they don't always have the uh, emotional capacity to be able to uh, digest that trauma in a way that can be properly transmuted, in my opinion. Um, what else? I think that's it. I think that's all I got. Yeah. Uh, well, yeah. <laughs> I'll come back with the rest. <laughs> Let's get started in this, uh, let's get started on this, this, uh, back with our, um, our wonderful, um, audiobook. It's, uh, almost 7.30 on a Wednesday, and, um, yeah, this has been a really great audiobook so far. I'm definitely enjoying it, I hope you guys are doing the same. Alright, let's go. Thus chance has been admitted, not merely as a mathematical tool for physics, but as part of its warp and weft. This recognition of an element of incomplete determinism, almost an irrationality in the world, is in a certain way parallel to Freud's admission of a deep irrational component. in human conduct and thought. 
In the present world of political as well as intellectual confusion, there is a natural tendency to class Gibbs, Freud, and the proponents of the modern theory of probability together as representatives of a single tendency, yet I do not wish to press this point. The gap between the Gibbs-Liebeskia way of thinking and Freud's intuitive but somewhat discursive method is too large. Yet in their recognition of a fundamental element of chance in the texture of the universe itself, these men are close to one another and close to the tradition of St. Augustine. For this random element, this organic incompleteness, is one which without too violent a figure of speech we may consider evil, the negative evil which St. Augustine characterizes as incompleteness, rather than the positive malicious evil of the Manichaeans. This book is devoted to the impact of the Gibshian point of view on modern life, both through the substantive changes it has made in working science, and through the changes it has made indirectly in our attitude to life in general. Thus the following chapters contain an element of technical description as well as a philosophic component which concerns what we do and how we should react to the new world that confronts us. I repeat, Gibbs' innovation was to consider not one world, but all the worlds which are possible answers to a limited set of questions concerning our environment. His central notion concerned the extent to which answers that we may give to questions about one set of worlds are probable among a larger set of worlds. Beyond this, Gibbs had a theory that this probability tended naturally to increase as the universe grows older. The measure of this probability is called entropy, and the characteristic tendency of entropy is to increase. As entropy increases, the universe, and all closed systems in the universe, tend naturally to deteriorate and lose their distinctiveness, to move from the least to the most probable state, from a state of organization and differentiation in which distinctions and forms exist, to a state of chaos and sameness. In Gibbs universe order is least probable, chaos most probable. But while the universe as a whole, if indeed there is a whole universe, tends to run down, there are local enclaves whose direction seems opposed to that of the universe at large and in which there is a limited and temporary tendency for organization to increase. Life finds its home in some of these enclaves. It is with this point of view at its core that the new science of cybernetics began its development. 1. 1. There are those who are skeptical as to the precise identity between entropy and biological disorganization. It will be necessary for me to evaluate these criticisms sooner or later, but for the present I must assume that the differences lie, not in the fundamental nature of these quantities, but in the systems in which they are observed. It is too much to expect a final, clear-cut definition of entropy on which all writers will agree in any less than the closed, isolated system. Chapter 1. Cybernetics in History Since the end of World War II, I have been working on the many ramifications of the theory of messages. Besides the electrical engineering theory of the transmission of messages, there is a larger field which includes not only the study of language but the study of messages as a means of controlling machinery and society, the development of computing machines and other such automata, certain reflections upon psychology and the nervous system, and a tentative new theory of scientific method. This larger theory of messages is a probabilistic theory, an intrinsic part of the movement that owes its origin to Willard Gibbs and which I have described in the introduction. Until recently, there was no existing word for this complex of ideas, and in order to embrace the whole field by a single term, I felt constrained to invent one. Hence cybernetics, 
which I derived from the Greek word kubernetes, or steersman, the same Greek word from which we eventually derive our word governor. Incidentally, I found later that the word had already been used by Ampere with reference to political science, and had been introduced in another context by a Polish scientist, both uses dating from the earlier part of the 19th century. I wrote a more or less technical book entitled Cybernetics which was published in 1948. In response to a certain demand for me to make its ideas acceptable to the lay public, I published the first edition of The Human Use of Human Beings in 1950. Since then the subject has grown from a few ideas shared by Dr. Claude Shannon, Warren Weaver, and myself, into an established region of research. Therefore, I take this opportunity occasioned by the reprinting of my book to bring it up to date, and to remove certain defects and inconsequentialities in its original structure. In giving the definition of cybernetics in the original book, I classed communication and control together. Why did I do this? When I communicate with another person, I impart a message to him, and when he communicates back with me he returns a related message which contains information primarily accessible to him and not to me. When I control the actions of another person, I communicate a message to him, and although this message is in the imperative mood, the technique of communication does not differ from that of a message of fact. Furthermore, if my control is to be effective I must take cognizance of any messages from him which may indicate that the order is understood and has been obeyed. It is the thesis of this book that society can only be understood through a study of the messages and the communication facilities which belong to it, and that in the future development of these messages and communication facilities, messages between man and machines, between machines and man, and between machine and machine, are destined to play an ever-increasing part. When I give an order to a machine, the situation is not essentially different from that which arises when I give an order to a person. In other words, as far as my consciousness goes I am aware of the order that has gone out and of the signal of compliance that has come back. To me, personally, the fact that the signal in its intermediate stages has gone through a machine rather than through a person is irrelevant and does not in any case greatly change my relation to the signal. Thus the theory of control in engineering, whether human, or animal or mechanical, is a chapter in the theory of messages. Naturally there are detailed differences in messages and in problems of control, not only between a living organism and a machine, but within each narrower class of beings. It is the purpose of cybernetics to develop a language and techniques that will enable us indeed to attack the problem of control and communication in general but also to find the proper repertory of ideas and techniques to classify their particular manifestations under certain concepts. The commands through which we exercise our control over our environment are a kind of information which we impart to it. Like any form of information, these commands are subject to disorganization in transit. They generally come through in less coherent fashion and certainly not more coherently than they were sent. In control and communication we are always fighting nature's tendency to degrade the organized and to destroy the meaningful, the tendency, as Gibbs has shown us, for entropy to increase. Much of this book concerns the limits of communication within and among individuals. Man is immersed in a world which he perceives through his sense organs. Information that he receives is co-ordinated through his brain and nervous system until, after the proper process of storage, collation, and selection, it emerges through effector organs, generally his muscles. These in turn act on the external world, 
and also react on the central nervous system through receptor organs such as the end organs of kinesthesia, and the information received by the kinesthetic organs is combined with his already accumulated store of information to influence future action. Information is a name for the content of what is exchanged with the outer world as we adjust to it, and make our adjustment felt upon it. The process of receiving and of using information is the process of our adjusting to the contingencies of the outer environment, and of our living effectively within that environment. The needs and the complexity of modern life make greater demands on this process of information than ever before, and our press, our museums, our scientific laboratories, our universities, our libraries, and textbooks, are obliged to meet the needs of this process or fail in their purpose. To live effectively is to live with adequate information. Thus, communication and control belong to the essence of man's inner life, even as they belong to his life in society. The place of the study of communication in the history of science is neither trivial, fortuitous, nor new. Even before Newton such problems were current in physics, especially in the work of Fermat, Huygens, and Leibniz, each of whom shared an interest in physics whose focus was not mechanics but optics the communication of visual images. Fermat furthered the study of optics with his principle of minimization which says that over any sufficiently short part of its course, light follows the path which it takes the least time to traverse. Huygens developed the primitive form of what is now known as Huygens' principle by saying that light spreads from a source by forming around that source something like a small sphere consisting of secondary sources which in turn propagate light just as the primary sources do. Leibniz in the meantime, saw the whole world as a collection of beings called monads whose activity consisted in the perception of one another on the basis of a pre-established harmony laid down by God, and it is fairly clear that he thought of this interaction largely in optical terms. Apart from this perception, the monads had no windows, so that in his view all mechanical interaction really becomes nothing more than a subtle consequence of optical interaction. A preoccupation with optics and with message which is apparent in this part of Leibniz's philosophy, runs through its whole texture. It plays a large part in two of his most original ideas, that of the Characteristica Universalis, or Universal Scientific Language, and that of the Calculus Ratiocinator, or Calculus of Logic. This Calculus Ratiocinator, imperfect as it was, was the direct ancestor of modern mathematical logic. Leibniz, dominated by ideas of communication, is, in more than one way, the intellectual ancestor of the ideas of this book, for he was also interested in machine computation and in automata. My views in this book are very far from being Leibnizian, but the problems with which I am concerned are most certainly Leibnizian. Leibniz's computing machines were only an offshoot of his interest in a computing language, a reasoning calculus which again was in his mind, merely an extension of his idea of a complete artificial language. Thus, even in his computing machine, Leibniz's preoccupations were mostly linguistic and communicational. Toward the middle of the last century, the work of Clerk Maxwell and of his precursor, Faraday, had attracted the attention of physicists once more to optics, the science of light, which was now regarded as a form of electricity that could be reduced to the mechanics of a curious, rigid, but invisible medium known as the ether, which, at the time, was supposed to permeate the atmosphere, interstellar space, and all transparent materials. 
Clerk Maxwell's work on optics consisted in the mathematical development of ideas which had been previously expressed in a cogent but non-mathematical form by Faraday. The study of ether raised certain questions whose answers were obscure, as, for example, that of the motion of matter through the ether. The famous experiment of Michelson and Morley, in the 90s, was undertaken to resolve this problem, and it gave the entirely unexpected answer that there simply was no way to determine the motion of matter through the ether. The first satisfactory solution to the problems aroused by this experiment was that of Lorentz, who pointed out that if the forces holding matter together were conceived as being themselves electrical or optical in nature, we should expect a negative result from the Michelson-Morley experiment. However, Einstein in 1905 translated these ideas of Lorentz into a form in which the unobservability of absolute motion was rather a postulate of physics than the result of any particular structure of matter. For our purposes, the important thing is that in Einstein's work, light and matter are on an equal basis, as they had been in the writings before Newton, without the Newtonian subordination of everything else to matter and mechanics. In explaining his views, Einstein makes abundant use of the observer who may be at rest or may be moving. In his theory of relativity it is impossible to introduce the observer without also introducing the idea of message, and without, in fact, returning the emphasis of physics to a quasi-Leibnizian state, whose tendency is once again optical. Einstein's theory of relativity and Gibbs' statistical mechanics are in sharp contrast, in that Einstein, like Newton, is still talking primarily in terms of an absolutely rigid dynamics not introducing the idea of probability. Gibbs' work, on the other hand, is probabilistic from the very start, yet both directions of work represent a shift in the point of view of physics in which the world as it actually exists is replaced in some sense or other by the world as it happens to be observed, and the old naive realism of physics gives way to something on which Bishop Berkeley might have smiled with pleasure. At this point it is appropriate for us to review certain notions pertaining to entropy which have already been presented in the introduction. As we have said, the idea of entropy represents several of the most important departures of Gibbsian mechanics from Newtonian mechanics. In Gibbs' view we have a physical quantity which belongs not to the outside world as such, but to certain sets of possible outside worlds and therefore to the answer to certain specific questions which we can ask concerning the outside world. Physics now becomes not the discussion of an outside universe which may be regarded as the total answer to all the questions concerning it, but an account of the answers to much more limited questions. In fact, we are now no longer concerned with the study of all possible outgoing and incoming messages which we may send and receive, but with the theory of much more specific outgoing and incoming messages, and it involves a measurement of the no longer infinite amount of information that they yield us. Messages are themselves a form of pattern and organization. Indeed, it is possible to treat sets of messages as having an entropy like sets of states of the external world. Just as entropy is a measure of disorganization, the information carried by a set of messages is a measure of organization. In fact, it is possible to interpret the information carried by a message as essentially the negative of its entropy, and the negative logarithm of its probability. That is, the more probable the message, the less information it gives. Clichés, for example, are less illuminating than great poems. I have already referred to Leibniz's interest in automata, an interest incidentally shared by his contemporary, Pascal.
who made real contributions to the development of what we now know as the desk adding machine. Leibniz saw in the concordance of the time given by clocks set at the same time, the model for the pre-established harmony of his monads. For the technique embodied in the automata of his time was that of the clockmaker. Let us consider the activity of the little figures which dance on the top of a music box. They move in accordance with a pattern, but it is a pattern which is set in advance, and in which the past activity of the figures has practically nothing to do with the pattern of their future activity. The probability that they will diverge from this pattern is nil. There is a message, indeed, but it goes from the machinery of the music box to the figures, and stops there. The figures themselves have no trace of communication with the outer world, except this one-way stage of communication with the pre-established mechanism of the music box. They are blind, deaf, and dumb, and cannot vary their activity in the least from the conventionalized pattern. Contrast with them the behavior of man, or indeed of any moderately intelligent animal such as a kitten. I call to the kitten and it looks up. I have sent it a message which it has received by its sensory organs, and which it registers in action. The kitten is hungry and lets out a pitiful wail. This time it is the sender of a message. The kitten bats at a swinging spool. The spool swings to its left, and the kitten catches it with its left paw. This time messages of a very complicated nature are both sent and received within the kitten's own nervous system through certain nerve end bodies in its joints, muscles, and tendons, and by means of nervous messages sent by these organs, the animal is aware of the actual position and tensions of its tissues. It is only through these organs that anything like a manual skill is possible. I have contrasted the prearranged behavior of the little figures on the music box on the one hand, and the contingent behavior of human beings and animals on the other. But we must not suppose that the music box is typical of all machine behavior. The older machines, and in particular the older attempts to produce automata, did in fact function on a closed clockwork basis. But modern automatic machines such as the controlled missile, the proximity fuse, the automatic door opener, the control apparatus for a chemical factory, and the rest of the modern armory of automatic machines which perform military or industrial functions, possess sense organs, that is, receptors for messages coming from the outside. These may be as simple as photoelectric cells which change electrically when a light falls on them, and which can tell light from dark, or as complicated as a television set. They may measure attention by the change it produces in the conductivity of a wire exposed to it, or they may measure temperature by means of a thermocouple, which is an instrument consisting of two distinct metals in contact with one another through which a current flows when one of the points of contact is heated. Every instrument in the repertory of the scientific instrument maker is a possible sense organ, and may be made to record its reading remotely through the intervention of appropriate electrical apparatus. Thus the machine which is conditioned by its relation to the external world, and by the things happening in the external world, is with us and has been with us for some time. The machine which acts on the external world by means of messages is also familiar. The automatic photoelectric door opener is known to every person who has passed through the Pennsylvania station in New York, and is used in many other buildings as well. When a message consisting of the interception of a beam of light is sent to the apparatus, this message actuates the door, and opens it so that the passenger may go through. 
The steps between the actuation of a machine of this type by sense organs and its performance of a task may be as simple as in the case of the electric door, or it may be in fact of any desired degree of complexity within the limits of our engineering techniques. A complex action is one in which the data introduced, which we call the input, to obtain an effect on the outer world, which we call the output, may involve a large number of combinations. These are combinations, both of the data put in at the moment and of the records taken from the past stored data which we call the memory. These are recorded in the machine. The most complicated machines yet made which transform input data into output data are the high-speed electrical computing machines, of which I shall speak later in more detail. The determination of the mode of conduct of these machines is given through a special sort of input, which frequently consists of punched carts or tapes or of magnetized wires, and which determines the way in which the machine is going to act in one operation, as distinct from the way in which it might have acted in another. Because of the frequent use of punched or magnetic tape in the control, the data which are fed in, and which indicate the mode of operation of one of these machines for combining information, are called the taping. I have said that man and the animal have a kinesthetic sense, by which they keep a record of the position and tensions of their muscles. For any machine subject to a varied external environment to act effectively it is necessary that information concerning the results of its own action be furnished to it as part of the information on which it must continue to act. For example, if we are running an elevator, it is not enough to open the outside door because the orders we have given should make the elevator be at that door at the time we open it. It is important that the release for opening the door be dependent on the fact that the elevator is actually at the door. Otherwise something might have detained it, and the passenger might step into the empty shaft. This control of a machine on the basis of its actual performance rather than its expected performance is known as feedback, and involves sensory members which are actuated by motor members and perform the function of telltales or monitors, that is, of elements which indicate a performance. It is the function of these mechanisms to control the mechanical tendency toward disorganization, in other words, to produce a temporary and local reversal of the normal direction of entropy. I have just mentioned the elevator as an example of feedback. There are other cases where the importance of feedback is even more apparent. For example, a gun pointer takes information from his instruments of observation and conveys it to the gun, so that the latter will point in such a direction that the missile will pass through the moving target at a certain time. Now. The gun itself must be used under all conditions of weather. In some of these the grease is warm, and the gun swings easily and rapidly. Under other conditions the grease is frozen or mixed with sand, and the gun is slow to answer the orders given to it. If these orders are reinforced by an extra push given when the gun fails to respond easily to the orders and lags behind them, then the error of the gun pointer will be decreased. To obtain a performance as uniform as possible, it is customary to put into the gun a control feedback element which reads the lag of the gun behind the position it should have according to the orders given it, and which uses this difference to give the gun an extra push. It is true that precautions must be taken so that the push is not too hard, for if it is, the gun will swing past its proper position, and will have to be pulled back in a series of oscillations, which may well become wider and wider, and lead to a disastrous instability. If the feedback system is itself controlled, if, in other words, its own entropic tendencies are checked by still other controlling mechanism, and kept within limits sufficiently stringent, 
this will not occur, and the existence of the feedback will increase the stability of performance of the gun. In other words, the performance will become less dependent on the frictional load, or what is the same thing, on the drag created by the stiffness of the grease. Something very similar to this occurs in human action. If I pick up my cigar, I do not will to move any specific muscles. Indeed in many cases, I do not know what those muscles are. What I do is to turn into action a certain feedback mechanism, namely, a reflex in which the amount by which I have yet failed to pick up the cigar is turned into a new and increased order to the lagging muscles, whichever they may be. In this way, a fairly uniform voluntary command will enable the same task to be performed from widely varying initial positions, and irrespective of the decrease of contraction due to fatigue of the muscles. Similarly, when I drive a car, I do not follow out a series of commands dependent simply on a mental image of the road and the task I am doing. If I find the car swerving too much to the right, that causes me to pull it to the left. This depends on the actual performance of the car, and not simply on the road, and it allows me to drive with nearly equal efficiency a light Austin or a heavy truck, without having formed separate habits for the driving of the two. I shall have more to say about this in the chapter in this book on special machines, where we shall discuss the service that can be done to neuropathology by the study of machines with defects in performance similar to those occurring in the human mechanism. It is my thesis that the physical functioning of the living individual and the operation of some of the newer communication machines are precisely parallel in their analogous attempts to control entropy through feedback. Both of them have sensory receptors as one stage in their cycle of operation, that is, in both of them there exists a special apparatus for collecting information from the outer world at low energy levels, and for making it available in the operation of the individual or of the machine. In both cases these external messages are not taken neat, but through the internal transforming powers of the apparatus, whether it be alive or dead. The information is then turned into a new form available for the further stages of performance. In both the animal and the machine this performance is made to be effective on the outer world. In both of them, their performed action on the outer world, and not merely their intended action, is reported back to the central regulatory apparatus. This complex of behavior is ignored by the average man, and in particular does not play the role that it should in our habitual analysis of society, for just as individual physical responses may be seen from this point of view, so may the organic responses of society itself. I do not mean that the sociologist is unaware of the existence and complex nature of communications in society, but until recently he has tended to overlook the extent to which they are the cement which binds its fabric together. We have seen in this chapter the fundamental unity of a complex of ideas which until recently had not been sufficiently associated with one another, namely, the contingent view of physics that Gibbs introduced as a modification of the traditional, Newtonian conventions, the Augustinian attitude toward order and conduct which is demanded by this view, and the theory of the message among men, machines, and in society as a sequence of events in time which, though it itself has a certain contingency, strives to hold back nature's tendency toward disorder by adjusting its parts to various purposive ends. Chapter 2 Progress and Entropy As we have said, nature's statistical tendency to disorder, the tendency for entropy to increase in isolated systems, is expressed by the second law of thermodynamics. We, as human beings, are not isolated systems. 
We take in food, which generates energy, from the outside, and are, as a result, parts of that larger world which contains those sources of our vitality. But even more important is the fact that we take in information through our sense organs, and we act on information received. Now the physicist is already familiar with the significance of this statement as far as it concerns our relations with the environment. A brilliant expression of the role of information in this respect is provided by Clerk Maxwell, in the form of the so-called Maxwell demon, which we may describe as follows. Suppose that we have a container of gas, whose temperature is everywhere the same. Some molecules of this gas will be moving faster than others. Now let us suppose that there is a little door in the container that lets the gas into a tube which runs to a heat engine, and that the exhaust of this heat engine is connected by another tube back to the gas chamber, through another door. At each door there is a little being with the power of watching the oncoming molecules and of opening or closing the doors in accordance with their velocity. The demon at the first door opens it only for high-speed molecules and closes it in the face of low-speed molecules coming from the container. The role of the demon at the second door is exactly the opposite. He opens the door only for low-speed molecules coming from the container and closes it in the face of high-speed molecules. The result is that the temperature goes up at one end and down at the other thus creating a perpetual motion of the second kind, that is, a perpetual motion which does not violate the first law of thermodynamics, which tells us that the amount of energy within a given system is constant, but does violate the second law of thermodynamics, which tells us that energy spontaneously runs downhill in temperature. In other words, the Maxwell demon seems to overcome the tendency of entropy to increase. Perhaps I can illustrate this idea still further by considering a crowd milling around in a subway at two turnstiles, one of which will only let people out if they are observed to be running at a certain speed, and the other of which will only let people out if they are moving slowly. The fortuitous movement of the people in the subway will show itself as a stream of fast-moving people coming from the first turnstile, whereas the second turnstile will only let through slow-moving people. If these two turnstiles are connected by a passageway with a treadmill in it, the fast-moving people will have a greater tendency to turn the treadmill in one direction than the slow people to turn it in the other, and we shall gather a source of useful energy in the fortuitous milling around of the crowd. Here there emerges a very interesting distinction between the physics of our grandfathers and that of the present day. In 19th century physics, it seemed to cost nothing to get information. The result is that there is nothing in Maxwell's physics to prevent one of his demons from furnishing its own power source. Modern physics, however, recognizes that the demon can only gain the information with which it opens or closes the door from something like a sense organ which for these purposes is an eye. The light that strikes the demon's eye is not an energyless supplement of mechanical motion, but shares in the main properties of mechanical motion itself. Light cannot be received by any instrument unless it hits it, and cannot indicate the position of any particle unless it hits the particle as well. This means, then, that even from a purely mechanical point of view we cannot consider the gas chamber as containing mere gas, but rather gas and light which may or may not be in equilibrium. If the gas and the light are in equilibrium, it can be shown as a consequence of present physical doctrine that the Maxwell demon will be as blind as if there were no light at all. We shall have a cloud of light coming from every direction, giving no indication of the position and momenta of the gas particles. 
Therefore, the Maxwell demon will work only in a system that is not in equilibrium. In such a system, however, it will turn out that the constant collision between light and gas particles tends to bring the light and particles to an equilibrium. Thus, while the demon may temporarily reverse the usual direction of entropy, ultimately it too will wear down. The Maxwell demon can work indefinitely only if additional light comes from outside the system and does not correspond in temperature to the mechanical temperature of the particles themselves. This is a situation which should be perfectly familiar to us, because we see the universe around us reflecting light from the sun, which is very far from being in equilibrium with mechanical systems on the Earth. Strictly speaking, we are confronting particles whose temperature is 50 or 60 degree F with a light which comes from a sun at many thousands of degrees. In a system which is not in equilibrium, or in part of such a system, entropy need not increase. It may, in fact, decrease locally. Perhaps this non-equilibrium of the world about us is merely a stage in a downhill course which will ultimately lead to equilibrium. Sooner or later we shall die and it is highly probable that the whole universe around us will die the heat death, in which the world shall be reduced to one vast temperature equilibrium in which nothing really new ever happens. There will be nothing left but a drab uniformity out of which we can expect only minor and slash insignificant local fluctuations. But we are not yet spectators at the last stages of the world's death. In fact these last stages can have no spectators. Therefore, in the world with which we are immediately concerned there are stages which, though they occupy an insignificant fraction of eternity, are of great significance for our purposes, for in them entropy does not increase and organization and its correlative, information, are being built up. What I have said about these enclaves of increasing organization is not confined merely to organization as exhibited by living beings. Machines also contribute to a local and temporary building up of information, notwithstanding their crude and imperfect organization compared with that of ourselves. Here I want to interject the semantic point that such words as life, purpose, and soul are grossly inadequate to precise scientific thinking. These terms have gained their significance through our recognition of the unity of a certain group of phenomena, and do not in fact furnish us with any adequate basis to characterize this unity. Whenever we find a new phenomenon which partakes to some degree of the nature of those which we have already termed living phenomena, but does not conform to all the associated aspects which define the term life, we are faced with the problem whether to enlarge the word life so as to include them, or to define it in a more restrictive way so as to exclude them. We have encountered this problem in the past in considering viruses, which show some of the tendencies of life to persist, to multiply, and to organize but do not express these tendencies in a fully developed form. Now that certain analogies of behavior are being observed between the machine and the living organism, the problem as to whether the machine is alive or not is, for our purposes, semantic and we are at liberty to answer it one way or the other as best suits our convenience. As Humpty Dumpty says about some of his more remarkable words, I pay them extra, and make them do what I want. If we wish to use the word life to cover all phenomena which locally swim upstream against the current of increasing entropy, we are at liberty to do so. However, we shall then include many astronomical phenomena which have only the shadiest resemblance to life as we ordinarily know it. It is in my opinion, therefore, best to avoid all question-begging epithets such as life, soul, vitalism, and the like 
and say merely in connection with machines that there is no reason why they may not resemble human beings in representing pockets of decreasing entropy in a framework in which the large entropy tends to increase. When I compare the living organism with such a machine, I do not for a moment mean that the specific physical, chemical, and spiritual processes of life as we ordinarily know it are the same as those of life-imitating machines. I mean simply that they both can exemplify locally anti-entropic processes, which perhaps may also be exemplified in many other ways which we should naturally term neither biological nor mechanical. While it is impossible to make any universal statements concerning life-imitating automata in a field which is growing as rapidly as that of automatization, there are some general features of these machines as they actually exist that I should like to emphasize. One is that they are machines to perform some definite task or tasks, and therefore must possess effector organs, analogous to arms and legs in human beings, with which such tasks can be performed. The second point is that they must be in rapport with the outer world by sense organs, such as photoelectric cells and thermometers, which not only tell them what the existing circumstances are, but enable them to record the performance or non-performance of their own tasks. This last function, as we have seen, is called feedback, the property of being able to adjust future conduct by past performance. Feedback may be as simple as that of the common reflex, or it may be a higher-order feedback, in which past experience is used not only to regulate specific movements, but also whole policies of behavior. Such a policy feedback may, and often does, appear to be what we know under one aspect as a conditioned reflex, and under another as learning. For all these forms of behavior, and particularly for the more complicated ones, we must have central decision organs which determine what the machine is to do next on the basis of information fed back to it, which it stores by means analogous to the memory of a living organism. It is easy to make a simple machine which will run toward the light or run away from it, and if such machines also contain lights of their own, a number of them together will show complicated forms of social behavior such as have been described by Dr. Gray Walter in his book, The Living Brain. At present the more complicated machines of this type are nothing but scientific toys for the exploration of the possibilities of the machine itself and of its analog, the nervous system. But there is reason to anticipate that the developing technology of the near future will use some of these potentialities. Thus the nervous system and the automatic machine are fundamentally alike in that they are devices which make decisions on the basis of decisions they have made in the past. The simplest mechanical devices will make decisions between two alternatives, such as the closing or opening of a switch. In the nervous system, the individual nerve fiber also decides between carrying an impulse or not. In both the machine and the nerve, there is a specific apparatus for making future decisions depend on past decisions, and in the nervous system a large part of this task is done at those extremely complicated points called synapses where a number of incoming nerve fibers connect with a single outgoing nerve fiber. In many cases it is possible to state the basis of these decisions as a threshold of action of the synapse, or in other words, by telling how many incoming fibers should fire in order that the outgoing fibers may fire. This is the basis of at least part of the analogy between machines and living organisms. The synapse in the living organism corresponds to the switching device in the machine. For further development of the detailed relationship between machines and living organisms, one should consult the extremely inspiring books of Dr. Walter and Drive W. Ross Ashby. The machine, like the living organism, 
is, as I have said, a device which locally and temporarily seems to resist the general tendency for the increase of entropy. By its ability to make decisions it can produce around it a local zone of organization in a world whose general tendency is to run down. The scientist is always working to discover the order and organization of the universe, and is thus playing a game against the archenemy, disorganization. Is this devil Manichaean or Augustinian? Is it a contrary force opposed to order or is it the very absence of order itself? The difference between these two sorts of demons will make itself apparent in the tactics to be used against them. The Manichaean devil is an opponent, like any other opponent, who is determined on victory and will use any trick of craftiness or dissimulation to obtain this victory. In particular, he will keep his policy of confusion secret, and if we show any signs of beginning to discover his policy, he will change it in order to keep us in the dark. On the other hand, the Augustinian devil, which is not a power in itself, but the measure of our own weakness, may require our full resources to uncover, but when we have uncovered it, we have in a certain sense exorcised it, and it will not alter its policy on a matter already decided with the mere intention of confounding us further. The Manichaean devil is playing a game of poker against us and will resort readily to bluffing, which, as von Neumann explains in his theory of games, is intended not merely to enable us to win on a bluff, but to prevent the other side from winning on the basis of a certainty that we will not bluff. Compared to this Manichaean being of refined malice, the Augustinian devil is stupid. He plays a difficult game, but he may be defeated by our intelligence as thoroughly as by a sprinkle of holy water. As to the nature of the devil, we have an aphorism of Einstein's which is more than an aphorism, and is really a statement concerning the foundations of scientific method. The Lord is subtle, but he isn't simply mean. Here the word Lord is used to describe those forces in nature which include what we have attributed to his very humble servant, the devil, and Einstein means to say that these forces do not bluff. Perhaps this devil is not far in meaning from Mephistopheles. When Faust asked Mephistopheles what he was, Mephistopheles replied, a part of that force which always seeks evil and always does good. In other words, the devil is not unlimited in his ability to deceive, and the scientist who looks for a positive force determined to confuse us in the universe which he is investigating is wasting his time. Nature offers resistance to decoding, but it does not show ingenuity in finding new and undecipherable methods for jamming our communication with the outer world. This distinction between the passive resistance of nature and the active resistance of an opponent suggests a distinction between the research scientist and the warrior or the game player. The research physicist has all the time in the world to carry out his experiments, and he need not fear that nature will in time discover his tricks and method and change her policy. Therefore, his work is governed by his best moments, whereas a chess player cannot make one mistake without finding an alert adversary ready to take advantage of it and to defeat him. Thus the chess player is governed more by his worst moments than by his best moments. I may be prejudiced about this claim for I have found it possible myself to do effective work in science, while my chess has been continually vitiated by my carelessness at critical instance. The scientist is thus disposed to regard his opponent as an honorable enemy. This attitude is necessary for his effectiveness as a scientist, but tends to make him the dupe of unprincipled people in war and in politics. It also has the effect of making it hard for the general public to understand him 
for the general public is much more concerned with personal antagonists than with nature as an antagonist. We are immersed in a life in which the world as a whole obeys the fusion increases and order decreases. Yet, as we have seen, the second law of thermodynamics, while it may be a valid statement about the whole of a closed system, is definitely not valid concerning a non-isolated part of it. There are local and temporary islands of decreasing entropy in a world in which the entropy as a whole tends to increase, and the existence of these islands enables some of us to assert the existence of progress. What can we say about the general direction of the battle between progress and increasing entropy in the world immediately about us? The Enlightenment, as we all know, fostered the idea of progress, even though there were among the men of the 18th century some who felt that this progress was subject to a law of diminishing returns, and that the golden age of society would not differ very much from what they saw about them. The crack in the fabric of the Enlightenment, marked by the French Revolution, was accompanied by doubts of progress elsewhere. Malthus, for example, sees the culture of his age about to sink into the slough of an uncontrolled increase in population, swallowing up all the gains so far made by humanity. The line of intellectual descent from Malthus to Darwin is clear. Darwin's great innovation in the theory of evolution was that he conceived of it not as a Lamarckian spontaneous ascent from higher to higher and from better to better, but as a phenomenon in which living beings showed a. a spontaneous tendency to develop in many directions, and b. a tendency to follow the pattern of their ancestors. The combination of these two effects was to prune and overlush developing nature and to deprive it of those organisms which were ill-adapted to their environment, by a process of natural selection. The result of this pruning was to leave a residual pattern of forms of life more or less well adapted to their environment. This residual pattern, according to Darwin, assumes the appearance of universal purposiveness. The concept of a residual pattern has come to the fore again in the work of Drive W. Ross Ashby. He uses it to explain the concept of machines that learn. He points out that a machine of rather random and haphazard structure will have certain near-equilibrium positions, and certain positions far from equilibrium, and that the near-equilibrium patterns will by their very nature last for a long time, while the others will appear only temporarily. The result is that in Ashby's machine, as in Darwin's nature, we have the appearance of a purposefulness in a system which is not purposefully constructed simply because purposelessness is in its very nature transitory. Of course, in the long run, the great trivial purpose of maximum entropy will appear to be the most enduring of all. But in the intermediate stages an organism or a society of organisms will tend to dally longer in those modes of activity in which the different parts work together, according to a more or less meaningful pattern. I believe that Ashby's brilliant idea of the unpurposeful random mechanism which seeks for its own purpose through a process of learning is not only one of the great philosophical contributions of the present day, but will lead to highly useful technical developments in the task of automatization. Not only can we build purpose into machines, but in an overwhelming majority of cases a machine designed to avoid certain pitfalls of breakdown will look for purposes which it can fulfill. Darwin's influence on the idea of progress was not confined to the biological world, even in the 19th century. All philosophers and all sociologists draw their scientific ideas from the sources available at their time. Thus it is not surprising to find that Marx and his contemporary socialists accepted a Darwinian point of view in the matter of evolution and progress. In physics, 
the idea of progress opposes that of entropy, although there is no absolute contradiction between the two. In the forms of physics directly <clears throat> dependent on the work of Newton, the information which contributes to progress and is directed against the increase of entropy may be carried by extremely small quantities of energy, or perhaps even by no energy at all. This view has been altered in the present century by the innovation in physics known as quantum theory. Quantum theory has led, for our purposes, to a new association of energy and information. A crude form of this association occurs in the theories of line noise in a telephone circuit or an amplifier. Such, background noise may be shown to be unavoidable, as it depends on the discrete character of the electrons which carry the current, and yet it has a definite power of destroying information. The circuit therefore demands a certain amount of communication power in order that the message may not be swamped by its own energy. More fundamental than this example is the fact that light itself has an atomic structure, and that light of a given frequency is radiated in lumps which are known as light quanta, which have a determined energy dependent on that frequency. Thus there can be no radiation of less energy than a single light quantum. The transfer of information cannot take place without a certain expenditure of energy, so that there is no sharp boundary between energetic coupling and informational coupling. Nevertheless, for most practical purposes, a light quantum is a very small thing, and the amount of energy transfer which is necessary for an effective informational coupling is quite small. It follows that in considering such a local process as the growth of a tree or of a human being, which depends directly or indirectly on radiation from the sun, an enormous local decrease in entropy may be associated with quite a moderate energy transfer. This is one of the fundamental facts of biology, and in particular of the theory of photosynthesis, or of the chemical process by which a plant is enabled to use the sun's rays to form starch. Alright, good folks. So, I will be hopping into an article pretty soon, in about the next less than five minutes, um, and from there we're going to get back into the uh, audiobook, but I definitely hope you're enjoying it so far, because I definitely am. <laughs> hey, what's going on? I'm hoping everybody's enjoying their evening. You are listening to another episode of Frequency Bay with me, your host, Madam Butterfly. Thank you so much for joining me. So we are going to get into Chapter 2, which uh, we just um, got into the first little bit of Chapter 2, and we're at like the very tipping point, or the very tip of uh, Chapter 2, and um, it's looking pretty good so far, so let's get back into it. So we're going to go about uh, 30 to 45 minutes with this audiobook, and then I'll hop into an article, and then we'll get back into the audiobook. The audiobook, and that'll be it for um, this podcast. Thank you so much for joining me and continuing to listen. Your, your, your support is appreciated. Many years to come. Teehee writing and the organization are a bit tighter and more orderly than in the first edition. It also includes comment on some exemplifications of cybernetics, e.g., the work of Ross Ashby, that had come to Wiener's attention only during the early 1950s. Yet, even though several chapters are essentially unchanged, something was lost in going from the first to the second edition. 
I miss the bluntness and pungency of some of the comments in the earlier edition, which apparently were cleaned up for the second. The cause celebration in 1954 in the USA was the Oppenheimer case. J. Robert Oppenheimer, the physicist who had directed the building of atom bombs during World War II, had subsequently come to disagree with the politically dominant figures in the government who were eager to develop and build with the greatest possible speed hydrogen bombs a thousand times more powerful than the atom bombs which had devastated Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Oppenheimer urged delay, as he preferred that a further effort be made to negotiate with the Soviet Union before proceeding with such an irreversible escalation of the arms race. This policy difference lay behind the dramatic Oppenheimer hearings, humiliating proceedings at the height of the anti-communist McCarthy era, and of the U.S. Congressional Un-American Activities Committee, leading to, absurdly, the labeling of Oppenheimer as a security risk. In that political atmosphere it is not surprising for a publisher to prefer a different focus than the misuse of the latest technologies, or the dangers of capitalist exploitation of technologies for profit. Wiener himself was at that time going on a lecture tour to India and was then occupied with several other projects, such as writing the second volume of his autobiography, The Mathematical Analysis of Brain Waves, Sensory Prosthesis and a New Formulation of Quantum Theory. He did not concern himself a great deal with the revision of a book he had written several years earlier, it would be more characteristic of him to write a new book or add a new chapter, rather than revise a book already written although he must have agreed to all revisions and editorial changes. At the end of the book, in both editions, Wiener compares the Catholic Church with the Communist Party, and both with Cold War government activities in capitalist America. The criticisms of America in these last few pages of the first edition, see appendix to this introduction, are, in spite of one brief pointed reference to McCarthyism, largely absent in the editions. The chapter Progress and Entropy, for example, is much longer in the first edition. The section on the history of inventions within that chapter is more detailed. The chapter also deals with such topics as the depletion of resources and American dependence on other nations for oil, copper, and tin, and the possibility of an energy crisis unless new inventions obviate it. It reviews vividly the progress in medicine and anticipates new problems such as the increasing use of synthetic foods that may contain minute quantities of carcinogens. These and other discursive excursions, peripheral to the main line of argument of the book, are omitted in the present edition. The human use of human beings was not Wiener's last word on the subject. He continued to think and talk and write. In 1959 he addressed and provoked a gathering of scientists by his reflections and analysis of some moral and technical consequences of automation, Science, Vol. 131, p. 1358, 1960, and in his last book, God and Golem, Inc., 1964, he returned to ethical concerns from the perspective of the creative scientist or engineer. It was Wiener's lifelong obsession to distinguish the human from the machine, having recognized the identity of patterns of organization and of many functions which can be performed by either but in the human use of human beings it is his intention to place his understanding of the people-slash-machine's identity-slash-dichotomy within the context of his generous and humane social philosophy. Cybernetics had originated from the analysis of formal analogies between the behavior of organisms and that of electronic and mechanical systems. The mostly military technologies new in his day, 
which today we call artificial intelligence, highlighted the potential resemblance between certain elaborate machines and people. Academic psychology in North America was in those days still predominantly behaviorist. The cybernetic machines, such as general-purpose computers, suggested a possibility as to the nature of mind. Mind was analogous to formal structure and organization, or the software aspect, of a reasoning and perceiving machine that could also issue instructions leading to actions. Thus the long-standing mind-brain duality was overcome by a materialism which encompassed organization, messages, and information in addition to stuff and matter. But the subjective, an individual's cumulative experience, sensations, and feelings, including the subjective experience of being alive, is belittled, seen only within the context of evolutionary theory as providing information useful for survival to the organism. If shorn of Wiener's benign social philosophy, what remains of cybernetics can be used within a highly mechanical and dehumanizing, even militaristic, outlook. The fact that the metaphor of a sophisticated automaton is so heavily employed invites thinking about humans as in effect machines. Many who have learned merely the technical aspects of cybernetics have used them, and do so today, for ends which Wiener abhorred. It is a danger he foresaw, would have liked to obviate and, although aware of how little he could do in that regard, valiantly tried to head off. The technological developments in themselves are impressive but since most of us already have to bear with a glut of promotional literature it is more to the point here to frame discussion not in the promoter's terms, what the new machine can do, but in a more human and social framework, how is the machine affecting people's lives? Or still more pointedly, who reaps a benefit from it? Wiener urged scientists and engineers to practice the imaginative forward glance so as to attempt assessing the impact of an innovation, even before making it known. However, once some of the machines or techniques were put on the market, a younger generation with sensitivity to human and social impacts could report empirically where the shoe pinches. Even though such reports may not suffice to radically change conventional patterns of deployment of technologies, which after all express many kinds of political and economic interests, they at least document what happens and help to educate the public. As long as their authors avoid an a priori pro-technology or anti-technology bias, they effectively carry on where Wiener left off. Among such reports we note Joseph W. Eisenbaum's description of the human damage manifested in the compulsive programmer, which poses questions about appropriate and inappropriate uses of computers. Similarly David Noble has documented how the introduction of automation in the machine tool industry has resulted in a deskilling of machinists to their detriment and has described in detail the political process by which this deskilling was brought about. These kinds of inhuman uses seem nearly subtle if placed next to the potentially most damaging use, war. The growth of communication computation automation devices and systems had made relatively small beginnings during World War II, but since then has been given high priority in U.S. government-subsidized military research and development, and in the Soviet Union as well. Their proliferation in military contexts has been enormous and extensive. A proper critique would entail an analysis in depth of world politics, and especially the political relations of the two superpowers. Wiener feared that he had helped to provide tools for the centralization of power, and indeed he and his fellow scientists and engineers had. For instance, under the Reagan government many billions of dollars were spent on plans for a protracted strategic nuclear war with the Soviet Union. 
the technological challenge was seen to be the development of an effective C-cubed system, command, control, and communication, which would be used to destroy enemy political and command centers and at the same time, through a multitude of methods, prevent the destruction of the corresponding American centers, leaving the USA fully in command throughout the nuclear war and victorious. Some principled scientists and engineers have, in a Venarian spirit, refused to work on, or have stopped working on, such mad schemes, or on implementing the politicians' Star Wars fantasies. We have already alluded to Wiener's heavy use of metaphors from engineering to describe the human and the social, and his neglect of the subjective experience. In the post-war years American sociologists, anthropologists, political scientists, and psychologists tried harder than ever to be seen as scientific. They readily borrowed the engineer's idiom and many sought to learn from the engineer's or mathematician's thinking. Continental European social thinkers were far more inclined to attend to the human subject and to make less optimistic claims about their scientific expertise but it required another decade before European thought substantially influenced the positivistic or logical empiricist predilections of the mainstream of American social scientists. A major development in academic psychology, prominent and well-funded today, relies strongly on the concept of information processing and models based on the computer. It traces its origins to the discussions on cybernetics in the post-war years and the wartime work of the British psychologist Kenneth Craig. This development, known as cognitive science, entirely ignores background contexts, the culture, the society, history, subjective experience, human feelings, and emotions. Thus it works with a highly impoverished model of what it is to be human. Such models have, however, found their challengers and critics, ranging from the journalist Gordon Rattray Taylor, The Natural History of Mind, 1979, to the psychologist James J. Gibson, the latter providing a far different approach to how humans know and perceive, the perception of the visual world, 1950, the senses considered as perceptual systems, 1966, the ecological approach to visual perception, 1979. If we trace the intellectual history of current thinking in such diverse fields as cellular biology, medicine, anthropology, psychiatry, ecology, and economics, we find that in each discipline concepts coming from cybernetics constitute one of the streams that have fed it. Cybernetics, including information theory, systems with purposive behavior and automaton models, was part of the intellectual dialogue of the 1950s and has since mingled with many other streams has been absorbed and become part of the conventional idiom and practice. Too many writings about technologies are dismal, narrow apologetic for special interests, and not very edifying. Yet the subject matter is intrinsically extremely varied and stimulating to an inquiring mind. It has profound implications for our day-to-day -day lives, their structure, and their quality. The social history of science and technology is a rich resource, even for imagining and reflecting on the future. Moreover the topic highlights central dilemmas in every political system. For example, how is the role of experts in advising governments related to political process? Or how is it possible to reconcile, in a capitalist economy within a democratic political structure, the unavoidable conflict between public interest and decision by a popular vote, on the one hand, and corporate decisions as to which engineering projects are profitable, on the other.
We are now seeing the rise of a relatively new genre of writing about technologies and people which is interesting, concrete, open, exploratory, and confronts political issues head-on. We need this writing, for we are living in what Eliel has appropriately called a technological society. Within that genre, Wiener's books, as well as some earlier writings by Lewis Mumford, are among the few pioneering works that have become classics. The present reissue of one of these classics is cause for rejoicing. May it stimulate readers to think passionately for themselves about the human use of human beings with the kind of intellectual honesty and compassion Wiener brought to the subject. Steve J. Himes, Boston, October 1988 Appendix What follows are two documents from Norbert Wiener's writings, an open letter published in the Atlantic Monthly Magazine, January 1947 issue, and the concluding passages of The Human Use of Human Beings, first edition, Houghton Mifflin, 1950. A Scientist Rebels The letter which follows was addressed by one of our ranking mathematicians to a research scientist of a great aircraft corporation, who had asked him for the technical account of a certain line of research he had conducted in the war. Professor Wiener's indignation at being requested to participate in indiscriminate rearmament, less than two years after victory, is typical of many American scientists who served their country faithfully during the war. Professor of mathematics in one of our great eastern institutions, Norbert Wiener was born in Columbia, Missouri, in 1894, the son of Leo Wiener, professor of Slavic languages at Harvard University. He took his doctorate at Harvard and did his graduate work in England and in Göttingen. Today he is esteemed one of the world's foremost mathematical analysts. His ideas played a significant part in the development of the theories of communication and control which were essential in winning the war. The Editor, Atlantic Monthly Sin I have received from you a note in which you state that you are engaged in a project concerning controlled missiles, and in which you request a copy of a paper which I wrote for the National Defense Research Committee during the war. As the paper is the property of a government organization, you are of course at complete liberty to turn to that government organization for such information as I could give you. If it is out of print as you say, and they desire to make it available for you, there are doubtless proper avenues of approach to them. When, however, you turn to me for information concerning controlled missiles, there are several considerations which determine my reply. In the past, the comedy of scholars has made it a custom to furnish scientific information to any person seriously seeking it. However, we must face these facts, the policy of the government itself during and after the war, say in the bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, has made it clear that to provide scientific information is not a necessarily innocent act, and may entail the gravest consequences. One therefore cannot escape reconsidering the established custom of the scientist to give information to every person who may inquire of him. The interchange of ideas which is one of the great traditions of science must of course receive certain limitations when the scientist becomes an arbiter of life and death. For the sake, however, of the scientist and the public, these limitations should be as intelligent as possible. The measures taken during the war by our military agencies, in restricting the free intercourse among scientists on related projects or even on the same project, have gone so far that it is clear that if continued in time of peace this policy will lead to the total irresponsibility of the scientist, and ultimately to the death of science. 
Both of these are disastrous for our civilization, and entail grave and immediate peril for the public. I realize, of course, that I am acting as the censor of my own ideas, and it may sound arbitrary, but I will not accept a censorship in which I do not participate. The experience of the scientists who have worked on the atomic bomb has indicated that in any investigation of this kind the scientist ends by putting unlimited powers in the hands of the people whom he is least inclined to trust with their use. It is perfectly clear also that to disseminate information about a weapon in the present state of our civilization is to make it practically certain that that weapon will be used. In that respect the controlled missile represents the still imperfect supplement to the atom bomb and to bacterial warfare. The practical use of guided missiles can only be to kill foreign civilians indiscriminately, and it furnishes no protection whatsoever to civilians in this country. I cannot conceive a situation in which such weapons can produce any effect other than extending the kamikaze way of fighting to whole nations. Their possession can do nothing but endanger us by encouraging the tragic insolence of the militant mind. If therefore I do not desire to participate in the bombing or poisoning of defenseless peoples, and I most certainly do not, I must take a serious responsibility as to those to whom I disclose my scientific ideas. Since it is obvious that with sufficient effort you can obtain my material, even though it is out of print, I can only protest pro forma in refusing to give you any information concerning my past work. However, I rejoice at the fact that my material is not readily available, inasmuch as it gives me the opportunity to raise this serious moral issue. I do not expect to publish any future work of mine which may do damage in the hands of irresponsible militarists. I am taking the liberty of calling this letter to the attention of other people in scientific work. I believe it is only proper that they should know of it in order to make their own independent decisions, if similar situations should confront them. Norbert we Francisco Alia, who is apologized by, said that wrong. I'll pronounce it wrong. Alright, let's see. It says, uh, the abstract, the, the dis in the descent of man into corruption and relation to sex, uh, published in 1871, Charles Darwin wrote, I fully subscribe to the judgment of those writers who maintain that of all the differences between man and lover uh, and lower animals, the morale sense of consciousness is by far the most important. I raise the question of whether morality is biological or, or culturally determined. The, the question of whether the moral sense is biologically determined may refer, may refer either to the captivity for ethics the captivity, the captivity uh, for ethics, 
the uh, or to the the moral norms accepted by human beings for for uh, guiding their actions. I propose that the capability for ethics is a necessary contribute of human nature, whereas moral codes are products of cultural evolution. Humans have a moral sense because their biological makeup determines the presence of this nece- of three necessities. Uh, conditions for conditions for rather uh, conditions for uh, ethical behavior. One, the ability to anticipate the consequences of one's own actions. Two, and the ability to make judgment, or to, sorry about that, the ability to make valuable, value judgments, and the ability to choose between uh, alternative act courses of action. Cultural behavior came about in evolution, in evolution not because it is adaptive in itself, but as a necessary consequence of men's uh, innate uh, intellectual ability. Abilities, sorry, uh, which are an an attitude directly promoted by natural selection, that is, morality evolved as an Exception, not as an adaptation, moral codes, however, are outcomes of cultural evaluation or cultural evolution, which account for the um, diversity of cultural norms among populations and for their evaluation through time, or evolution through time, I don't know why I keep saying evaluation. Um, Humans are animals and have evolved from ancestors that were not human, but our bodily frame, as well as the cap- capabilities that stem from it, show also that we are unique. Are, uni- are a unique kind of animal, a unique kind of ape with distinctive features of which the moral uh, sense is one. And if we are to agree that Darwinism, the most important, in his opinion, or the opinion of whoever wrote this. Um, As Steven Pinker has written, morality is not just any old topic in psychology, but close to our conception of the meaning of life. Moral goodness is what, moral goodness is what gives many of us the sense that we are worthy humans and worthy human beings. In this essay, I will examine morality as a consequential attribution among those that determine the differences, the differences of human beings at uh, issue, of course, stands the evolutionary origin of uh, morality, Um, human uniqueness. Two concepts, two two conscious humans Animorphal trait are erupt posture and large brains. We are the only uh, vertebrate species with a bipectual gait, bipectual gait, and erect posture. Birds are bipectual and their backbone stands horizontal rather than vertical. Penguins are a trivial expectation or trivial expectation. Uh, 
a trivial exemption in the bipedalism of kangaroos lacks erect posture and is uh, drastically different from our own. Uh, erect postures and bipedal gaia entail other metamorph meta or not meta morphological changes in the backbone hip bone and, uh, and feet and others. Brain size in mammals is generally proportional to the body relative to most humans. Humans have the greatest brain, or the largest brain rather. The chimpanzee brain has an approximate, an approximate volume of 300 centimeters. A gorilla's slightly larger. The human brain, the human adult brain is more than three times larger, typically between 1,300 centimeters and 1,400 centimeters. The brain is no, is not only larger in humans than in apes, but also much more complex. The cerebral cortex, where the higher cognitive functioning are possessed, is a human's uh, proportionately much greater than the rest of the brain than compared with apes. Erect posture and large brains are not the only um, anatomical features that distinguish us from non-human non primates, even they may be the uh, most obvious. Other notable anatomical differences include the reduction of the size of the jaw and teeth and remodeling of the face, reduction of body hair and changes in the skin and skin glands, modification of the vocal tract and larynx with important implications for were important for implications for spoken language, opposite uh, language opposing thumbs that allow uh, precise manipulation of objects and uh, cryptic ovulation may which may have been associated with the evolution of the nuclear family considering of one mother consisting of one mother and one father and their children humans are notably different from the apes and all other animals in anatomy but also in on less Importantly, in their functional uh, capabilities of behavior, both as individuals and socially, most fundamental are the advanced intellectual facilities, which allow humans to categorize, see in individual objects as members of general classes, which in the abstract in the form of images, realities that are not present, and thus anticipate future events and uh, planning future actions and reason. Other distinct functional features are self-awareness and deaf awareness. Symbolic creative language tools and making and technology complex extremely uh, extremely extremely uh, variable forms of uh, cooperation and social organization 
legal codes and political institutions, science, science, literature, and art, and ethics and religion. Humans live in groups that are socially organized, and so do other primates, but primate societies do not approach the, comp the complexities of human social organization. A, a decisive human social trait is cultural cultural which may be understood that which may be understood here as the set of non strictly biological humans social trait is cultural which may be understood here as the set of cultural is in the sense include includes social and political uh, infrastructures which ways of doing things, a religious and ethical traditions, language, common sense, and scientific knowledge, art, and literature, technology, and in general, all of the creations of the human mind. Culture is a pool of technological and social inventions that people acu accumulate to help them live their lives. Um, a really great article and I'm definitely gonna post this on my on my Facebook page, uh, Frequency Bay. If you haven't got a chance, if you haven't gotten the opportunity to like my Facebook page, you can definitely do that. Uh, all love is appreciated. Um so you can see it there to read more. Um but let's get back into um the lovely, uh, let's get back into the, um, audiobook. Cleaner. I have indicated that freedom of opinion at the present time is being crushed between the two rigidities of the church and the communist party. In the United States we are in the process of developing a new rigidity which combines the methods of both while partaking of the emotional fervor of neither. Our conservatives of all shades of opinion have somehow got together to make American capitalism and the fifth freedom of the businessman supreme throughout all the world. Our military men and our great merchant princes have looked upon the propaganda technique of the Russians and have found that it is good. They have found a worthy counterpart for the GPU and the FBI in its new role of political censor. They have not considered that these weapons form something fundamentally distasteful to humanity, and that they need the full force of an overwhelming faith and belief to make them even tolerable. This faith and belief they have nowhere striven to replace. Thus they have been false to the dearest part of our American traditions, without offering us any principles for which we may die, except a merely negative hatred of communism. They have succeeded in being un-American without being radical. To this end we have invented a new inquisition, the inquisition of teachers' oaths and of congressional committees. We have synthesized a new propaganda, lacking only one element which is common to the church and to the communist party, and that is the element of belief. We have accepted the methods, not the ideals of our possible antagonists, little realizing that it is the ideals which have given the methods whatever cogency they possess. Ourselves without faith, we presume to punish heresy. May the absurdity of our position soon perish amidst the Homeric laughter that it deserves. 
It is this triple attack on our liberties which we must resist, if communication is to have the scope that it properly deserves as the central phenomenon of society, and if a human individual is to reach and to maintain his full stature. It is again the American worship of know-how as opposed to know-what that hampers us. We rightly see great dangers in the totalitarian system of communism. On the one hand, we have called in to combat these the assistance of a totalitarian church which is in no respect ready to accept, in support of its standards, milder means than those to which communism appeals. On the other hand, we have attempted to synthesize a rigid system to fight fire by fire, and to oppose communism by institutions which bear more than a fortuitous resemblance to communistic institutions. In this we have failed to realize that the element in communism which essentially deserves our respect consists in its loyalties and in its insistence on the dignity and the rights of the worker. What is bad consists chiefly in the ruthless techniques to which the present phase of the communist revolution has resorted. Our leaders show a disquieting complacency in their acceptance of the ruthlessness and a disquieting unwillingness to refer their acts to any guiding principles. Fundamentally, Behind our counter-ruthlessness there is no adequate basis of real heartfelt assent. Let us hope that it is still possible to reverse the tide of the moment and to create a future America in which man can live and can grow to be a human being in the fullest and richest sense of the word. The Human Use of Human Beings Cybernetics and Society Norbert Wiener Preface The Idea of a Contingent Universe the beginning of the 20th century marked more than the end of one hundred year period and the start of another. There was a real change of point of view even before we made the political transition from the century on the whole dominated by peace, to the half century of war through which we have just been living. This was perhaps first apparent in science, although it is quite possible that whatever has affected science led independently to the marked break which we find between the arts and literature of the 19th and those of the 20th centuries. Newtonian physics, which had ruled from the end of the 17th century to the end of the 19th with scarcely an opposing voice, described a universe in which everything happened precisely according to law, a compact, tightly organized universe in which the whole future depends strictly upon the whole past. Such a picture can never be either fully justified or fully rejected experimentally and belongs in large measure to a conception of the world which is supplementary to experiment but in some ways more universal than anything that can be experimentally verified. We can never test by our imperfect experiments whether one set of physical laws or another can be verified down to the last decimal. The Newtonian view, however, was compelled to state and formulate physics as if it were, in fact, subject to such laws. This is now no longer the dominating attitude of physics, and the men who contributed most to its downfall were Boltzmann in Germany and Gibbs in the United States. These two physicists undertook a radical application of an exciting, new idea. Perhaps the use of statistics in physics which, in large measure, they introduced was not completely new, for Maxwell and others had considered worlds of very large numbers of particles which necessarily had to be treated statistically. But what Boltzmann and Gibbs did was to introduce statistics into physics in a much more thoroughgoing way, so that the statistical approach was valid not merely for systems of enormous complexity, but even for systems as simple as the single particle in a field of force. Statistics is the science of distribution, and the distribution contemplated by these modern scientists was not concerned with large numbers of similar particles, 
but with the various positions and velocities from which a physical system might start. In other words, under the Newtonian system the same physical laws apply to a variety of systems starting from a variety of positions and with a variety of momenta. The new statisticians put this point of view in a fresh light. They retained indeed the principle according to which certain systems may be distinguished from others by their total energy, but they rejected the supposition according to which systems with the same total energy may be clearly distinguished indefinitely and described forever by fixed causal laws. There was, actually, an important statistical reservation implicit in Newton's work, though the 18th century, which lived by Newton, ignored it. No physical measurements are ever precise, and what we have to say about a machine or other dynamic system really concerns not what we must expect when the initial positions and momenta are given with perfect accuracy, which never occurs, but what we are to expect when they are given with attainable accuracy. This merely means that we know, not the complete initial conditions, but something about their distribution. The functional part of physics, in other words, cannot escape considering uncertainty and the contingency of events. It was the merit of Gibbs to show for the first time a clean-cut scientific method for taking this contingency into consideration. The historian of science looks in vain for a single line of development. Gibbs' work, while well cut out, was badly sewed, and it remained for others to complete the job that he began. The intuition on which he based his work was that, in general, a physical system belonging to a class of physical systems, which continues to retain its identity as a class, eventually reproduces in almost all cases the distribution which it shows at any given time over the whole class of systems. In other words, under certain circumstances a system runs through all the distributions of position and momentum which are compatible with its energy, if it keeps running long enough. This last proposition, however, is neither true nor possible in anything but trivial systems. Nevertheless, there is another route leading to the results which Gibbs needed to bolster his hypothesis. The irony of history is that this route was being explored very thoroughly in Paris at exactly the time when Gibbs was working in New Haven, and yet it was not until 1920 that the Paris work met the New Haven work in a fruitful union. I had, I believe, the honor of assisting at the birth of the first child of this union. Gibbs had to work with theories of measure and probability which were already at least 25 years old and were grossly inadequate to his needs. At the same time, however, Borel and Liebescue in Paris were devising the theory of integration which was to prove opposite to the Gibbsian ideas. Borel was a mathematician who had already made his reputation in the theory of probability and had an excellent physical sense. He did work leading to this theory of measure but he did not reach the stage in which he could close it into a complete theory. This was done by his pupil Liebescue, who was a very different sort of person. He had neither the sense of physics nor an interest in it. Nonetheless Liebescue solved the problem put by Borel, but he regarded the solution of this problem as no more than a tool for Fourier series and other branches of pure mathematics. A quarrel developed between the two men when they both became candidates for admission to the French Academy of Sciences, and only after a great deal of mutual denigration, did they both receive this honor. Borel, however, continued to maintain the importance of Liebescu's work and his own as a physical tool, but I believe that I myself, in 1920, was the first person to apply the Liebescu integral to a specific physical problem, that of the Brownian motion. 
This occurred long after Gibbs' death, and his work remained for two decades one of those mysteries of science which work even though it seems that they ought not to work. Many men have had intuitions well ahead of their time, and this is not least true in mathematical physics. Gibbs' introduction of probability into physics occurred well before there was an adequate theory of the sort of probability he needed. But for all these gaps it is, I am convinced, Gibbs rather than Einstein or Heisenberg or Planck to whom we must attribute the first great revolution of 20th century physics. This revolution has had the effect that physics now no longer claims to deal with what will always happen, but rather with what will happen with an overwhelming probability. At the beginning in Gibbs' own work this contingent attitude was superimposed on a Newtonian base in which the elements whose probability was to be discussed were systems obeying all of the Newtonian laws. Gibbs' theory was essentially new, but the permutations with which it was compatible were the same as those contemplated by Newton. What has happened to physics since is that the rigid Newtonian basis has been discarded or modified, and the Gibbsian contingency now stands in its complete nakedness as the full basis of physics. It is true that the books are not yet quite closed on this issue and that Einstein and, in some of his phases, de Broglie, still contend that a rigid deterministic world is more acceptable than a contingent one, but these great scientists are fighting a rearguard action against the overwhelming force of a younger generation. One interesting change that has taken place is that in a probabilistic world we no longer deal with quantities and statements which concern a specific real universe as a whole but ask instead questions which may find their answers in a large number of similar universes. Thus chance has been admitted, not merely as a mathematical tool for physics, but as part of its warp and weft. This recognition of an element of incomplete determinism, almost an irrationality in the world, is in a certain way parallel to Freud's admission of a deep irrational component in human conduct and thought. In the present world of political as well as intellectual confusion, there is a natural tendency to class Gibbs, Freud, and the proponents of the modern theory of probability together as representatives of a single tendency, yet I do not wish to press this point. The gap between the Gibbs-Liebesky way of thinking and Freud's intuitive but somewhat discursive method is too large. Yet in their recognition of a fundamental element of chance in the texture of the universe itself, these men are close to one another and close to the tradition of S.T. Augustine. For this random element, this organic incompleteness, is one which without too violent a figure of speech we may consider evil, the negative evil which S.T. Augustine characterizes as incompleteness, rather than the positive malicious evil of the Manichaeans. Before the uh, back before the war in Ukraine, uh, I bought a 
Death threats for defending land and, coal and water from a coal mine. Force uh, YA women in Colombia, and this is just the opportunity to um, sign a petition 
and it led me to this vision to to get my eyes on it. Uh, like what is it? It says to be able to afford the spinal life-saving surgery that he needs because uh, it's not covered by his insurance. Um, he sells music on TikTok um, as a way to um, gain funds. And he has really beautiful music that he, he writes himself and he produces himself, which I also thought was really 
In short, it says, thank you so much for your assistance paying for spinal cord rehabilitation. <laughs> thank you so much for your assistance for paying for spinal cord rehabilitation just to make a consultation appointment at the Shirley Ryan of just to make a consultation at the Shirley Ryan and Rosie Lab for $6,000 just to start a payment plan. It's a minimum of $100,000. Well worth it because they have the latest state-of-the-art equipment and therapy I need to take my first step towards walking again. Shock therapy to help uh, regain use of my hands and standing. And standing helps body functioning heart and lung functioning along with Dr. Joseph's Coteau treatment will allow me to live longer and, and continue to help my daughter. I'm, ju I, I'm just like you. Please help save my life. I really need an opportunity to walk. Anything helps. I really thank you so much for helping me live longer. This, I, <laughs> and I laugh because I'm disgusted. I'm gonna make this video short, everybody. This young man is trying to raise funds so he'll be able to go through therapy on his spine so he'll be able to walk again. I would like to challenge everybody that's on the channel that's able to to match We Are Humans donation of $50 and or donate at least a minimum of $5 to help this young man out. Imagine if only 20,000 people donated $5, we can change this young man's life and get him help to be able to walk again. Think about it, everybody. You spend $5 on something that you do not need every day. Here's a man that can put that $5 to use. Please open your heart and be willing to sacrifice that $5 to help this young man out. To give him another opportunity at life to be able to walk again. Thank you, everybody. I love you all. Have a blessed and wonderful day. Especially shit like that. Um, but that one was definitely the one that's the closest to my heart. Um, I definitely have others that are present um, on my or on the new Frequency Family page. So if you want to give it a look, um, comment, like, share if you can't donate. Helps to spread the word as well. Um, but whatever you are able to share, it is always appreciated. But uh, we're going to get back into this wonderful um it's wonderful I will and it for this particular uh session. Thank you so much for joining me. Alright good people let's get back into it. We're here once again with the human use of human beings, cybernetics and society by Norbert Wiener. 
and we read about 30 more minutes to go, and that'll be it for the day. Uh, thank you so much for listening to my podcast. This book is devoted to the impact of the Gibshion point of view on modern life, both through the substantive changes it has made in working science, and through the changes it has made indirectly in our attitude to life in general. Thus the following chapters contain an element of technical description as well as a philosophic component which concerns what we do and how we should react to the new world that confronts us. I repeat, Gibbs' innovation was to consider not one world, but all the worlds which are possible answers to a limited set of questions concerning our environment. His central notion concerned the extent to which answers that we may give to questions about one set of worlds are probable among a larger set of worlds. Beyond this, Gibbs had a theory that this probability tended naturally to increase as the universe grows older. The measure of this probability is called entropy, and the characteristic tendency of entropy is to increase. As entropy increases, the universe, and all closed systems in the universe, tend naturally to deteriorate and lose their distinctiveness, to move from the least to the most probable state, from a state of organization and differentiation in which distinctions and forms exist, to a state of chaos and sameness. In Gibbs' universe order is least probable, chaos most probable. But while the universe as a whole, if indeed there is a whole universe, tends to run down, there are local enclaves whose direction seems opposed to that of the universe at large and in which there is a limited and temporary tendency for organization to increase. Life finds its home in some of these enclaves. It is with this point of view at its core that the new science of cybernetics began its development. 1. 1. There are those who are skeptical as to the precise identity between entropy and biological disorganization. It will be necessary for me to evaluate these criticisms sooner or later, but for the present I must assume that the differences lie, not in the fundamental nature of these quantities, but in the systems in which they are observed. It is too much to expect a final, clear-cut definition of entropy on which all writers will agree in any less than the closed, isolated system. Chapter 1. Cybernetics in History Since the end of World War II, I have been working on the many ramifications of the theory of messages. Besides the electrical engineering theory of the transmission of messages, there is a larger field which includes not only the study of language but the study of messages as a means of controlling machinery and society, the development of computing machines and other such automata, certain reflections upon psychology and the nervous system, and a tentative new theory of scientific method. This larger theory of messages is a probabilistic theory, an intrinsic part of the movement that owes its origin to Willard Gibbs and which I have described in the introduction. Until recently, there was no existing word for this complex of ideas, and in order to embrace the whole field by a single term, I felt constrained to invent one. Hence cybernetics, which I derived from the Greek word kubernetes, or steersman, the same Greek word from which we eventually derive our word governor. Incidentally, I found later that the word had already been used by Ampere with reference to political science, and had been introduced in another context by a Polish scientist, both uses dating from the earlier part of the 19th century. I wrote a more or less technical book entitled Cybernetics which was published in 1948. In response to a certain demand for me to make its ideas acceptable to the lay public, I published the first edition of The Human Use of Human Beings in 1950. 
Since then the subject has grown from a few ideas shared by Dr. Claude Shannon, Warren Weaver, and myself, into an established region of research. Therefore, I take this opportunity occasioned by the reprinting of my book to bring it up to date, and to remove certain defects and inconsequentialities in its original structure. In giving the definition of cybernetics in the original book, I classed communication and control together. Why did I do this? When I communicate with another person, I impart a message to him, and when he communicates back with me he returns a related message which contains information primarily accessible to him and not to me. When I control the actions of another person, I communicate a message to him, and although this message is in the imperative mood, the technique of communication does not differ from that of a message of fact. Furthermore, if my control is to be effective I must take cognizance of any messages from him which may indicate that the order is understood and has been obeyed. It is the thesis of this book that society can only be understood through a study of the messages and the communication facilities which belong to it, and that in the future development of these messages and communication facilities, messages between man and machines, between machines and man, and between machine and machine, are destined to play an ever-increasing part. When I give an order to a machine, the situation is not essentially different from that which arises when I give an order to a person. In other words, as far as my consciousness goes I am aware of the order that has gone out and of the signal of compliance that has come back. To me, personally, the fact that the signal in its intermediate stages has gone through a machine rather than through a person is irrelevant and does not in any case greatly change my relation to the signal. Thus the theory of control in engineering, whether human, or animal or mechanical, is a chapter in the theory of messages. Naturally there are detailed differences in messages and in problems of control, not only between a living organism and a machine, but within each narrower class of beings. It is the purpose of cybernetics to develop a language and techniques that will enable us indeed to attack the problem of control and communication in general, but also to find the proper repertory of ideas and techniques to classify their particular manifestations under certain concepts. The commands through which we exercise our control over our environment are a kind of information which we impart to it. Like any form of information, these commands are subject to disorganization in transit. They generally come through in less coherent fashion and certainly not more coherently than they were sent. In control and communication we are always fighting nature's tendency to degrade the organized and to destroy the meaningful, the tendency, as Gibbs has shown us, for entropy to increase. Much of this book concerns the limits of communication within and among individuals. Man is immersed in a world which he perceives through his sense organs. Information that he receives is co-ordinated through his brain and nervous system until, after the proper process of storage, collation, and selection, it emerges through effector organs, generally his muscles. These in turn act on the external world, and also react on the central nervous system through receptor organs such as the end organs of kinesthesia, and the information received by the kinesthetic organs is combined with his already accumulated store of information to influence future action. Information is a name for the content of what is exchanged with the outer world as we adjust to it, and make our adjustment felt upon it. The process of receiving and of using information is the process of our adjusting to the contingencies of the outer environment, and of our living effectively within that environment. The needs and the complexity of modern life make greater demands on this process of information than ever before, 
in our press, our museums, our scientific laboratories, our universities, our libraries, and textbooks, are obliged to meet the needs of this process or fail in their purpose. To live effectively is to live with adequate information. Thus, communication and control belong to the essence of man's inner life, even as they belong to his life in society. The place of the study of communication in the history of science is neither trivial, fortuitous, nor new. Even before Newton such problems were current in physics, especially in the work of Fermat, Huygens, and Leibniz, each of whom shared an interest in physics whose focus was not mechanics but optics, the communication of visual images. Fermat furthered the study of optics with his principle of minimization which says that over any sufficiently short part of its course, light follows the path which it takes the least time to traverse. Huygens developed the primitive form of what is now known as Huygens' principle by saying that light spreads from a source by forming around that source something like a small sphere consisting of secondary sources which in turn propagate light just as the primary sources do. Leibniz, in the meantime, saw the whole world as a collection of beings called monads whose activity consisted in the perception of one another on the basis of a pre-established harmony laid down by God and it is fairly clear that he thought of this interaction largely in optical terms. Apart from this perception, the monads had no windows, so that in his view all mechanical interaction really becomes nothing more than a subtle consequence of optical interaction. A preoccupation with optics and with message, which is apparent in this part of Leibniz's philosophy, runs through its whole texture. It plays a large part in two of his most original ideas, that of the Characteristica Universalis, or Universal Scientific Language, and that of the Calculus Ratiocinator, or Calculus of Logic. This Calculus Ratiocinator, imperfect as it was, was the direct ancestor of modern mathematical logic. Leibniz, dominated by ideas of communication, is, in more than one way, the intellectual ancestor of the ideas of this book for he was also interested in machine computation and in automata. My views in this book are very far from being Leibnizian, but the problems with which I am concerned are most certainly Leibnizian. Leibniz's computing machines were only an offshoot of his interest in a computing language, a reasoning calculus which again was in his mind, merely an extension of his idea of a complete artificial language. Thus, even in his computing machine, Leibniz's preoccupations were mostly linguistic and communicational. Toward the middle of the last century, the work of Clerk Maxwell and of his precursor, Faraday, had attracted the attention of physicists once more to optics, the science of light, which was now regarded as a form of electricity that could be reduced to the mechanics of a curious, rigid, but invisible medium known as the ether, which, at the time, was supposed to permeate the atmosphere, interstellar space, and all transparent materials. Clerk Maxwell's work on optics consisted in the mathematical development of ideas which had been previously expressed in a cogent but non-mathematical form by Faraday. The study of ether raised certain questions whose answers were obscure, as, for example, that of the motion of matter through the ether. The famous experiment of Michelson and Morley, in the 90s, was undertaken to resolve this problem, and it gave the entirely unexpected answer that there simply was no way to determine the motion of matter through the ether. The first satisfactory solution to the problems aroused by this experiment was that of Lorentz, 
who pointed out that if the forces holding matter together were conceived as being themselves electrical or optical in nature, we should expect a negative result from the Michelson-Morley experiment. However, Einstein in 1905 translated these ideas of Lorentz into a form in which the unobservability of absolute motion was rather a postulate of physics than the result of any particular structure of matter. For our purposes, the important thing is that in Einstein's work, light and matter are on an equal basis, as they had been in the writings before Newton, without the Newtonian subordination of everything else to matter and mechanics. In explaining his views, Einstein makes abundant use of the observer who may be at rest or may be moving. In his theory of relativity it is impossible to introduce the observer without also introducing the idea of message, and without, in fact, returning the emphasis of physics to a quasi-Leibnizian state, whose tendency is once again optical. Einstein's theory of relativity and Gibbs statistical mechanics are in sharp contrast, in that Einstein, like Newton, is still talking primarily in terms of an absolutely rigid dynamics not introducing the idea of probability. Gibbs' work, on the other hand, is probabilistic from the very start, yet both directions of work represent a shift in the point of view of physics in which the world as it actually exists is replaced in some sense or other by the world as it happens to be observed and the old naive realism of physics gives way to something on which Bishop Berkeley might have smiled with pleasure. At this point it is appropriate for us to review certain notions pertaining to entropy which have already been presented in the introduction. As we have said, the idea of entropy represents several of the most important departures of Gibbsian mechanics from Newtonian mechanics. In Gibbs' view we have a physical quantity which belongs not to the outside world as such, but to certain sets of possible outside worlds, and therefore to the answer to certain specific questions which we can ask concerning the outside world. Physics now becomes not the discussion of an outside universe which may be regarded as the total answer to all the questions concerning it, but an account of the answers to much more limited questions. In fact, we are now no longer concerned with the study of all possible outgoing and incoming messages which we may send and receive, but with the theory of much more specific outgoing and incoming messages, and it involves a measurement of the no longer infinite amount of information that they yield us. Messages are themselves a form of pattern and organization. Indeed, it is possible to treat sets of messages as having an entropy like sets of states of the external world. Just as entropy is a measure of disorganization, the information carried by a set of messages is a measure of organization. In fact, it is possible to interpret the information carried by a message as essentially the negative of its entropy, and the negative logarithm of its probability. That is, the more probable the message, the less information it gives. Clichés, for example, are less illuminating than great poems. I have already referred to Leibniz's interest in automata, an interest incidentally shared by his contemporary, Pascal who made real contributions to the development of what we now know as the desk-adding machine. Leibniz saw in the concordance of the time given by clocks set at the same time, the model for the pre-established harmony of his monads. For the technique embodied in the automata of his time was that of the clockmaker. Let us consider the activity of the little figures which dance on the top of a music box. They move in accordance with a pattern, but it is a pattern which is set in advance, and in which the past activity of the figures has practically nothing to do with the pattern of their future activity. The probability that they will diverge from this pattern is nil. 
There is a message, indeed, but it goes from the machinery of the music box to the figures, and stops there. The figures themselves have no trace of communication with the outer world, except this one-way stage of communication with the pre-established mechanism of the music box. They are blind, deaf, and dumb, and cannot vary their activity in the least from the conventionalized pattern. Contrast with them the behavior of man, or indeed of any moderately intelligent animal such as a kitten. I call to the kitten and it looks up. I have sent it a message which it has received by its sensory organs, and which it registers in action. The kitten is hungry and lets out a pitiful wail. This time it is the sender of a message. The kitten bats at a swinging spool. The spool swings to its left, and the kitten catches it with its left paw. This time messages of a very complicated nature are both sent and received within the kitten's own nervous system through certain nerve end bodies in its joints, muscles, and tendons, and by means of nervous messages sent by these organs, the animal is aware of the actual position and tensions of its tissues. It is only through these organs that anything like a manual skill is possible. I have contrasted the prearranged behavior of the little figures on the music box on the one hand, and the contingent behavior of human beings and animals on the other. But we must not suppose that the music box is typical of all machine behavior. The older machines, and in particular the older attempts to produce automata, did in fact function on a closed clockwork basis. But modern automatic machines such as the controlled missile, the proximity fuse, the automatic door opener, the control apparatus for a chemical factory, and the rest of the modern armory of automatic machines which perform military or industrial functions, possess sense organs, that is, receptors for messages coming from the outside. These may be as simple as photoelectric cells which change electrically when a light falls on them, and which can tell light from dark, or as complicated as a television set. They may measure attention by the change it produces in the conductivity of a wire exposed to it, or they may measure temperature by means of a thermocouple, which is an instrument consisting of two distinct metals in contact with one another through which a current flows when one of the points of contact is heated. Every instrument in the repertory of the scientific instrument maker is a possible sense organ, and may be made to record its reading remotely through the intervention of appropriate electrical apparatus. Thus the machine which is conditioned by its relation to the external world, and by the things happening in the external world, is with us and has been with us for some time. The machine which acts on the external world by means of messages is also familiar. The automatic photoelectric door opener is known to every person who has passed through the Pennsylvania station in New York, and is used in many other buildings as well. When a message consisting of the interception of a beam of light is sent to the apparatus, this message actuates the door, and opens it so that the passenger may go through. The steps between the actuation of a machine of this type by sense organs and its performance of a task may be as simple as in the case of the electric door, or it may be in fact of any desired degree of complexity within the limits of our engineering techniques. A complex action is one in which the data introduced, which we call the input, to obtain an effect on the outer world, which we call the output, may involve a large number of combinations. These are combinations both of the data put in at the moment and of the records taken from the past stored data which we call the memory. These are recorded in the machine. The most complicated machines yet made which transform input data into output data are the high-speed electrical computing machines, 
of which I shall speak later in more detail. The determination of the mode of conduct of these machines is given through a special sort of input, which frequently consists of punched cards or tapes or of magnetized wires, and which determines the way in which the machine is going to act in one operation, as distinct from the way in which it might have acted in another. Because of the frequent use of punched or magnetic tape in the control, the data which are fed in, and which indicate the mode of operation of one of these machines for combining information, are called the taping. I have said that man and the animal have a kinesthetic sense, by which they keep a record of the position and tensions of their muscles. For any machine subject to a varied external environment to act effectively it is necessary that information concerning the results of its own action be furnished to it as part of the information on which it must continue to act. For example, if we are running an elevator, it is not enough to open the outside door because the orders we have given should make the elevator be at that door at the time we open it. It is important that the release for opening the door be dependent on the fact that the elevator is actually at the door, otherwise something might have detained it, and the passenger might step into the empty shaft. This control of a machine on the basis of its actual performance rather than its expected performance is known as feedback and involves sensory members which are actuated by motor members and perform the function of telltales or monitors, that is, of elements which indicate a performance. It is the function of these mechanisms to control the mechanical tendency toward disorganization, in other words, to produce a temporary and local reversal of the normal direction of entropy. I have just mentioned the elevator as an example of feedback. There are other cases where the importance of feedback is even more apparent. For example, a gun pointer takes information from his instruments of observation, and conveys it to the gun, so that the latter will point in such a direction that the missile will pass through the moving target at a certain time. Now, the gun itself must be used under all conditions of weather. In some of these the grease is warm, and the gun swings easily and rapidly. Under other conditions the grease is frozen or mixed with sand, and the gun is slow to answer the orders given to it. If these orders are reinforced by an extra push given when the gun fails to respond easily to the orders and lags behind them, then the error of the gun pointer will be decreased. To obtain a performance as uniform as possible, it is customary to put into the gun a control feedback element which reads the lag of the gun behind the position it should have according to the orders given it, and which uses this difference to give the gun an extra push. It is true that precautions must be taken so that the push is not too hard, for if it is, the gun will swing past its proper position, and will have to be pulled back in a series of oscillations, which may well become wider and wider, and lead to a disastrous instability. If the feedback system is itself controlled, if, in other words, its own entropic tendencies are checked by still other controlling mechanism, and kept within limits sufficiently stringent, this will not occur, and the existence of the feedback will increase the stability of performance of the gun. In other words, the performance will become less dependent on the frictional load, or what is the same thing, on the drag created by the stiffness of the grease. Something very similar to this occurs in human action. If I pick up my cigar, I do not will to move any specific muscles. Indeed in many cases, I do not know what those muscles are. What I do is to turn into action a certain feedback mechanism, namely, a reflex in which the amount by which I have yet failed to pick up the cigar is turned into a new and increased order to the lagging muscles, whichever they may be. In this way, 
a fairly uniform voluntary command will enable the same task to be performed from widely varying initial positions, and irrespective of the decrease of contraction due to fatigue of the muscles. Similarly, when I drive a car, I do not follow out a series of commands dependent simply on a mental image of the road and the task I am doing. If I find the car swerving too much to the right, that causes me to pull it to the left. This depends on the actual performance of the car, and not simply on the road, and it allows me to drive with nearly equal efficiency a light Austin or a heavy truck, without having formed separate habits for the driving of the two. I shall have more to say about this in the chapter in this book on special machines, where we shall discuss the service that can be done to neuropathology by the study of machines with defects in performance similar to those occurring in the human mechanism. It is my thesis that the physical functioning of the living individual and the operation of some of the newer communication machines are precisely parallel in their analogous attempts to control entropy through feedback. Both of them have sensory receptors as one stage in their cycle of operation, that is, in both of them there exists a special apparatus for collecting information from the outer world at low energy levels, and for making it available in the operation of the individual or of the machine. In both cases these external messages are not taken neat, but through the internal transforming powers of the apparatus, whether it be alive or dead. The information is then turned into a new form available for the further stages of performance. In both the animal and the machine this performance is made to be effective on the outer world. In both of them, their performed action on the outer world, and not merely their intended action, is reported back to the central regulatory apparatus. This complex of behavior is ignored by the average man, and in particular does not play the role that it should in our habitual analysis of society, for just as individual physical responses may be seen from this point of view, so may the organic responses of society itself. I do not mean that the sociologist is unaware of the existence and complex nature of communications in society, but until recently he has tended to overlook the extent to which they are the cement which binds its fabric together. We have seen in this chapter the fundamental unity of a complex of ideas which until recently had not been sufficiently associated with one another, namely, the contingent view of physics that Gibbs introduced as a modification of the traditional, Newtonian conventions, the Augustinian attitude toward order and conduct which is demanded by this view, and the theory of the message among men, machines, and in society as a sequence of events in time which, though it itself has a certain contingency, strives to hold back nature's tendency toward disorder by adjusting its parts to various purposive ends. Chapter 2 Progress and Entropy As we have said, nature's statistical tendency to disorder, the tendency for entropy to increase in isolated systems, is expressed by the second law of thermodynamics. We, as human beings, are not isolated systems. We take in food, which generates energy, from the outside, and are, as a result, parts of that larger world which contains those sources of our vitality. But even more important is the fact that we take in information through our sense organs, and we act on information received. Now the physicist is already familiar with the significance of this statement as far as it concerns our relations with the environment. A brilliant expression of the role of information in this respect is provided by Clerk Maxwell, in the form of the so-called Maxwell demon, which we may describe as follows. Suppose that we have a container of gas, whose temperature is everywhere the same. 
Some molecules of this gas will be moving faster than others. Now let us suppose that there is a little door in the container that lets the gas into a tube which runs to a heat engine, and that the exhaust of this heat engine is connected by another tube back to the gas chamber, through another door. At each door there is a little being with the power of watching the oncoming molecules and of opening or closing the doors in accordance with their velocity. The demon at the first door opens it only for high-speed molecules and closes it in the face of low-speed molecules coming from the container. The role of the demon at the second door is exactly the opposite, he opens the door only for low-speed molecules coming from the container and closes it in the face of high-speed molecules. The result is that the temperature goes up at one end and down at the other thus creating a perpetual motion of the second kind, that is, a perpetual motion which does not violate the first law of thermodynamics, which tells us that the amount of energy within a given system is constant, but does violate the second law of thermodynamics, which tells us that energy spontaneously runs downhill in temperature. In other words, the Maxwell demon seems to overcome the tendency of entropy to increase. Perhaps I can illustrate this idea still further by considering a crowd milling around in a subway at two turnstiles, one of which will only let people out if they are observed to be running at a certain speed, and the other of which will only let people out if they are moving slowly. The fortuitous movement of the people in the subway will show itself as a stream of fast-moving people coming from the first turnstile, whereas the second turnstile will only let through slow-moving people. If these two turnstiles are connected by a passageway with a treadmill in it, the fast-moving people will have a greater tendency to turn the treadmill in one direction than the slow people to turn it in the other, and we shall gather a source of useful energy in the fortuitous milling around of the crowd. Here there emerges a very interesting distinction between the physics of our grandfathers and that of the present day. In 19th century physics, it seemed to cost nothing to get information. The result is that there is nothing in Maxwell's physics to prevent one of his demons from furnishing its own power source. Modern physics, however, recognizes that the demon can only gain the information with which it opens or closes the door from something like a sense organ which for these purposes is an eye. The light that strikes the demon's eye is not an energy-less supplement of mechanical motion, but shares in the main properties of mechanical motion itself. Light cannot be received by any instrument unless it hits it, and cannot indicate the position of any particle unless it hits the particle as well. This means, then, that even from a purely mechanical point of view we cannot consider the gas chamber as containing mere gas, but rather gas and light which may or may not be in equilibrium. If the gas and the light are in equilibrium, it can be shown as a consequence of present physical doctrine that the Maxwell demon will be as blind as if there were no light at all. We shall have a cloud of light coming from every direction, giving no indication of the position and momenta of the gas particles. Therefore the Maxwell demon will work only in a system that is not in equilibrium. In such a system, however, it will turn out that the constant collision between light and gas particles tends to bring the light and particles to an equilibrium. Thus while the demon may temporarily reverse the usual direction of entropy, ultimately it too will wear down. The Maxwell demon can work indefinitely only if additional light comes from outside the system and does not correspond in temperature to the mechanical temperature of the particles themselves. This is a situation which should be perfectly familiar to us, because we see the universe around us reflecting light from the sun, which is very far from being in equilibrium with mechanical systems on the earth. 
Strictly speaking, we are confronting particles whose temperature is 50 or 60A degree F with a light which comes from a sun at many thousands of degrees. In a system which is not in equilibrium, or in part of such a system, entropy need not increase. It may, in fact, decrease locally. Perhaps this non-equilibrium of the world about us is merely a stage in a downhill course which will ultimately lead to equilibrium. Sooner or later we shall die, and it is highly probable that the whole universe around us will die the heat death, in which the world shall be reduced to one vast temperature equilibrium in which nothing really new ever happens. There will be nothing left but a drab uniformity out of which we can expect only minor and slash insignificant local fluctuations. But we are not yet spectators at the last stages of the world's death. In fact these last stages can have no spectators. Therefore, in the world with which we are immediately concerned there are stages which, though they occupy an insignificant fraction of eternity, are of great significance for our purposes, for in them entropy does not increase and organization and its correlative, information, are being built up. What I have said about these enclaves of increasing organization is not confined merely to organization as exhibited by living beings. Machines also contribute to a local and temporary building up of information, notwithstanding their crude and imperfect organization compared with that of ourselves. Here I want to interject the semantic point that such words as life, purpose, and soul are grossly inadequate to precise scientific thinking. These terms have gained their significance through our recognition of the unity of a certain group of phenomena, and do not in fact furnish us with any adequate basis to characterize this unity. Whenever we find a new phenomenon which partakes to some degree of the nature of those which we have already termed living phenomena, but does not conform to all the associated aspects which define the term life, we are faced with the problem whether to enlarge the word life so as to include them, or to define it in a more restrictive way so as to exclude them. We have encountered this problem in the past in considering viruses, which show some of the tendencies of life to persist, to multiply, and to organize but do not express these tendencies in a fully developed form. Now that certain analogies of behavior are being observed between the machine and the living organism, the problem as to whether the machine is alive or not is, for our purposes, semantic and we are at liberty to answer it one way or the other as best suits our convenience. As Humpty Dumpty says about some of his more remarkable words, I pay them extra, and make them do what I want. If we wish to use the word life to cover all phenomena which locally swim upstream against the current of increasing entropy, we are at liberty to do so. However, we shall then include many astronomical phenomena which have only the shadiest resemblance to life as we ordinarily know it. It is in my opinion, therefore, best to avoid all question-begging epithets such as life, soul, vitalism, and the like, and say merely in connection with machines that there is no reason why they may not resemble human beings in representing pockets of decreasing entropy in a framework in which the large entropy tends to increase. When I compare the living organism with such a machine, I do not for a moment mean that the specific physical, chemical, and spiritual processes of life as we ordinarily know it are the same as those of life-imitating machines. I mean simply that they both can exemplify locally anti-entropic processes, which perhaps may also be exemplified in many other ways which we should naturally term neither biological nor mechanical. While it is impossible to make any universal statements concerning life-imitating automata in a field which is growing as rapidly as that of automatization, 
there are some general features of these machines as they actually exist that I should like to emphasize. One is that they are machines to perform some definite task or tasks, and therefore must possess effector organs, analogous to arms and legs in human beings, with which such tasks can be performed. The second point is that they must be in rapport with the outer world by sense organs, such as photoelectric cells and thermometers, which not only tell them what the existing circumstances are, but enable them to record the performance or non-performance of their own tasks. This last function, as we have seen, is called feedback, the property of being able to adjust future conduct by past performance. Feedback may be as simple as that of the common reflex, or it may be a higher-order feedback, in which past experience is used not only to regulate specific movements, but also whole policies of behavior. Such a policy feedback may, and often does, appear to be what we know under one aspect as a conditioned reflex, and under another as learning. For all these forms of behavior, and particularly for the more complicated ones, we must have central decision organs which determine what the machine is to do next on the basis of information fed back to it, which it stores by means analogous to the memory of a living organism. It is easy to make a simple machine which will run toward the light or run away from it, and if such machines also contain lights of their own, a number of them together will show complicated forms of social behavior such as have been described by Dr. Gray Walter in his book, The Living Brain. At present the more complicated machines of this type are nothing but scientific toys for the exploration of the possibilities of the machine itself and of its analog, the nervous system. But there is reason to anticipate that the developing technology of the near future will use some of these potentialities. Thus the nervous system and the automatic machine are fundamentally alike in that they are devices which make decisions on the basis of decisions they have made in the past. The simplest mechanical devices will make decisions between two alternatives, such as the closing or opening of a switch. In the nervous system, the individual nerve fiber also decides between carrying an impulse or not. In both the machine and the nerve, there is a specific apparatus for making future decisions depend on past decisions, and in the nervous system a large part of this task is done at those extremely complicated points called synapses where a number of incoming nerve fibers connect with a single outgoing nerve fiber. In many cases it is possible to state the basis of these decisions as a threshold of action of the synapse, or in other words, by telling how many incoming fibers should fire in order that the outgoing fibers may fire. This is the basis of at least part of the analogy between machines and living organisms. The synapse in the living organism corresponds to the switching device in the machine. For further development of the detailed relationship between machines and living organisms, one should consult the extremely inspiring books of Dr. Walter and Drive W. Ross Ashby. The machine, like the living organism, is, as I have said, a device which locally and temporarily seems to resist the general tendency for the increase of entropy. By its ability to make decisions it can produce around it a local zone of organization in a world whose general tendency is to run down. The scientist is always working to discover the order and organization of the universe, and is thus playing a game against the archenemy, disorganization. Is this devil Manichaean or Augustinian? Is it a contrary force opposed to order or is it the very absence of order itself? The difference between these two sorts of demons will make itself apparent in the tactics to be used against them. The Manichaean devil is an opponent, like any other opponent, 
who is determined on victory and will use any trick of craftiness or dissimulation to obtain this victory. In particular, he will keep his policy of confusion secret, and if we show any signs of beginning to discover his policy, he will change it in order to keep us in the dark. On the other hand, the Augustinian devil, which is not a power in itself, but the measure of our own weakness, may require our full resources to uncover, but when we have uncovered it, we have in a certain sense exorcised it, and it will not alter its policy on a matter already decided with the mere intention of confounding us further. The Manichaean devil is playing a game of poker against us and will resort readily to bluffing, which, as von Neumann explains in his theory of games, is intended not merely to enable us to win on a bluff, but to prevent the other side from winning on the basis of a certainty that we will not bluff. Alright, ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for joining me today on another episode of our wonderful podcast. Uh, this has been uh, Frequency Bay, and I'm your host, Madam Butterfly. Uh, and you're listening to the Human Use of Human Beings. Cybernetics and Society. Uh, tomorrow we will get, well, not tomorrow, but our next episode. Uh, we'll get into the third chapter. chapter is called chapter three the riveti and learning two patterns of communication communicative behavior it says communications or communicative machines or organizations rather adapt to their environment as do societies democracy is a loosely constructed social organization with a lot of opportunity for adaptation and so is a better social uh, structure for humans and fascism that should be pretty good i'm excited to get into it and thank you so much for listening uh you guys have a great evening great morning great night whenever you're listening thank you so much uh this has been madam butterfly uh madam butterfly out thank you